It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. Welcome. As we make our way through Mark's gospel, we are in Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. And just to kind of get you caught up, last week we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus. And if I'm honest, we looked rather hard in that passage to see if there was evidence of triumph, and there doesn't seem to be much. A bit of a lackluster event, actually. But that was the day before the passage we are about to look at uh, this morning. So we are at uh, Mark uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. And uh, little theologians, uh, the children of Covenant Presbyterian Church, if I could talk to you for just a quick moment. I do like, by the way, to uh, get your artwork at the end of the worship service. So uh, unless it's uh, scary to approach uh, a guy in a black robe, um, I, don't, I don't know there's much I can do about that other than not look scary. But I would like uh, your art. And the art I'm asking you to work on for this passage is a art, art piece of artwork about you pretending to be someone. Who do you pretend to be when you're playing? I'll share a little bit uh, about myself later in the sermon, but this passage is about pretending. So, there's your artwork. Our passage is Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for making yourself known to us. We are sorry that our hearts are so dull that we run after so many distractions. Father, we're sorry for that. By your Spirit, would you give us an alertness to your Word, who you are, and what you are teaching us about Jesus this morning. Thank you for doing that by your Spirit. In his name, amen. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against another, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." 
This is the word of our Lord. When I was in junior high, my younger sister had a birthday party. Well, she had several birthday parties. But she had one in particular um, in which my mom took her to a uh, photography studio in the mall. To spend one's birthday in the mall was actually uh, a pretty significant event uh, when I was a kid. I'd spent several of my birthdays in malls. But my sister and her friends, they spent uh, their uh, afternoon at this studio having their pictures taken wearing fashionable dresses and jewelry like celebrities on a photo shoot. And the studio was for that purpose. Uh, the studio had this assortment of dresses and jackets and furs, unlimited makeup, every kind of costume jewelry, gold, silver, diamonds, rubies. But everything was over-the-top garish, and everything was actually fake. I mean, none of it was real. And at the end of their uh, birthday uh, in this, uh, or at the end of her birthday in this studio, all of the girls uh, were able to bring home photographs of themselves uh, who were dressed in all of these fake clothes. Imagine that. Coming home, what they brought home were pictures in which everything really was fake. It just wasn't real. And you could tell from looking at the pictures, I mean, the camera angle, the background, the clothes, the impossibly shiny lip gloss, the facial expression, the smooth as porcelain skin, the reflective sparkles in their pupils. I mean, none of it was real. The studio was there for this purpose. And the picture that my sister brought home, that wasn't my sister. Just like every other older brother that day, I poked fun at my sister for a ridiculous photo. And probably right after I did that, I myself went outside, hopped on my bike, and pretended to be riding a motorcycle 100 miles an hour around a windy racetrack. Sure, I did that. Or maybe I hit uh, tennis balls against the garage door, um, trying to impress an imaginary crowd at an imaginary Wimbledon. I mean, all of us know, right, what it's like to pretend to be somebody else. Some of you have spent vast amounts of your childhood dressed like princesses or soldiers or ballet dancers or cowboys. When we were young, we pretended all the time. But of course, when we got older, we stopped pretending. Or did we? In this passage, we find a fig tree and this fig tree is not being what a fig tree is actually supposed to be. It's a fig tree, but it's pretending to be uh, something else. It's a deceptive tree. And in this passage, we find a, a temple courtyard that is not being what a temple courtyard is supposed to be. It's a temple, but it's pretending to be something else. It's a deceptive temple. And this may sound strange to you as you have just looked at this passage yourself, but it's absolutely critical that you see this in order to understand what's happening in this passage. God made the fig tree to be a fig tree. He gave it a purpose. And Jesus, he sees that it's not fulfilling its purpose and he judges it. And so too, God made the temple to be the temple. And he gave it a purpose as well. And Jesus sees that neither is it fulfilling its purpose and he judges it. 
Well, let me tell you where I'm going with this passage. You ready for this? We're, we're going to make our way to this theme of the passage. You and I were all of us actually made by God for a purpose. And that purpose for which God made us is to worship him and to enjoy him alone forever. And when we don't do this, we are pretending. When we don't do this, we're being deceptive. And if we're not careful, we will be judged. Now, the very last six verses of this passage are actually very uh, hopeful, a hope even for pretenders, pretenders everywhere. God is willing to forgive us rather than condemn us. So that's what the passage is about, but let's get there by looking at the, past, the first two scenes of the passage, which I think are very, very closely related. There's a deceptive tree, and there's a deceptive temple, and the passage finishes with the mercy of God. So just look with me at verse 12. The very day after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, when a small crowd had greeted him. You remember that. A small crowd greets him, but very quickly it seems as though that fanfare is gone. So yesterday, when Jesus entered the temple uh, with, uh, or entered the city with a crowd, the fanfare ends. Even as Jesus walks to the temple, it seems as though the crowd left him, but that was yesterday. This morning, is it any different? This morning, Jesus, he returns to the city, and there's no awaiting crowd, but there is a crowd in the temple. They just don't care that Jesus has arrived. So you see in verse 12 that at some distance outside the city of, Je- of Jerusalem, that Jesus, he's hungry. He's hungry. What an interesting detail for Mark to give to us. Mark's never said anything about Jesus being hungry before. Even after Jesus was tested by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was hungry, but not Mark. It's critical to the narrative, though, to see that Jesus is hungry. We all know what it feels like to be hungry. And as Jesus is uh, hungering, he's looking down the road. Mark tells us that he sees something. And he sees something that actually is a pretty good sign. He sees a fig tree, and the fig tree is full of leaves. I'll tell you why that's a good sign. A fig tree has unique leaves. They're really thick and coarse leaves, uh, and they're really uh, big leaves. And this fig tree, Jesus can tell from a distance, is full of leaves. And everyone in the ancient world, in Jerusalem and in Rome, that's Mark's intended audience, everyone would know that a fig leaf can be recognized at a distance when it's full of leaves. Now, Maybe you didn't know this, but the fruit on a fruit tree doesn't always look exactly the way it does in a grocery store. On the tree, the fruit grows through various stages, and an apple on the tree doesn't always look like the apple that you find in a grocery store. Before it's an apple, it's this hard little bud of vegetation that grows larger and grows softer. I mean, you'd never pluck an apple bud from the tree and eat it. It's not ready. It's unripe. And if you eat this, you can likely expect a stomach ache. So you're not going to find those early buds of fruit in the grocery store. Fig trees are just like this. Fig trees produce these hard little buds that grow and they soften slowly uh, over time, uh, turning into ripe fruit. In the spring, before the fruit is really ripe, a fig tree will will produce this this slightly hard uh, early fruit. Those in the ancient world would understand exactly what this is. This is the spring fruit of a fig tree. 
And then later during the summer, these figs are going to become larger and softer, perhaps in some ways more easily uh, palatable. And some of you know this because you have fig trees uh, growing in your yard right now. But people in the Middle East during the time of Jesus, they might actually er eat these uh, spring figs, slightly unripe, a little bit concentrated. As for me, I'd wait until the summer figs. They taste less figgy. But in the ancient world, it is not odd to expect there to be spring fruit. And so Mark, look what he does. He tells us that Jesus is hungry and that Jesus, he's looking down the road and that he sees this fig tree and leaf. And here's what we really need to know. This early fruit, it comes right before the leaves. The early fruit, it comes right before the leaves. So if you see all of these leaves, what ought you be able to count on? Well... You ought to be able to count on some of this early fruit, even though it's just spring, and even though the summer fruit isn't present. Do you feel how Jesus feels? He's hungry, and down the road, in the direction which they're traveling, he expects there to be food. But that fig tree doesn't have food. Verse 13 is pretty hard to understand. It wasn't the season for figs, but uh, really I believe what Mark is telling us there is he's, he's telling us that it's not the season for summer figs, but it is exceptionally full of leaves just like it will be in the summer when it begins to produce that summer fig. But even though it doesn't have summer fruit, it ought to have this spring fruit because it's full of leaves. And you can see Jesus arrives and there's uh, none of that spring fruit uh, and it should have the spring fruit and he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. I mean, think about that. Not just this season, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, ever. I mean, there's no hope for this tree that is not functioning according to its purpose. There are numerous examples in the Old Testament of prophets using a fig tree as a symbol for judgment. And, and Jesus, he seems to be doing that here, even if the disciples don't quite understand. The fig tree made a promise to Jesus. Does that make sense to you? The fig tree actually made a promise to Jesus as he's walking down the street. He sees all of the leaves, and the fig tree's promise was, I have leaves. Come try the fruit. It made a promise of fruit. It showed off its large leaves that could be seen at a distance. It lured the expectant traveler, but the fig tree was only pretending to have figs. It was really fruitless. Wood and leaves, but no figs. It was made to have fruit, and it had an opportunity to give fruit to the very king of Judah, but it didn't. It was only pretending it deceived, and it was punished. Now, all of this is a bit odd, I know. Can a fig tree do all this? And who among the followers of Jesus would actually understand that this is what is happening? And who among the original readers in Rome would actually get this? But keep this in mind. We don't have to fully understand what's happening except for the bits that I've just shown to you. Because those are the parts of the narrative that are going to inform what happens next. Because in verse 15, 
Mark tells us that they came to Jerusalem. And it seems that almost immediately, didn't time seem a little bit draggy the last time Jesus entered Jerusalem? But now he came to Jerusalem and almost immediately he entered the temple. And not only that, with the very same apparent urgency, he begins to do something in the temple. Notice how everything happens so quickly in 15. We're supposed to connect what we have gleaned from the story of the fig to this scene. We want to consider where Jesus is uh, in the temple. Let me tell you where he is. Jesus is actually in the outer courtyard of the temple. This courtyard would be right alongside of the temple, and it's called the Court of Gentiles. It's the largest courtyard that's a part of the temple complex. It's around 35 acres. 35 acres. It's massive. 500 yards by 325 yards. And it's enclosed by these enormous columns that are supporting this narrow roof such that you have this uh, narrow portico that runs around the edge of this 35-acre courtyard. And the portico has these uh, high ceilings about 30 feet up. And all of the merchants then would be underneath this portico that extends around the periphery of this courtyard. People are walking back and forth in the center of this quad, but the merchants on the side, they're converting currency and they're selling animals. People have come from all over the Roman world, so they're likely to have the kinds of needs that are being offered in the courtyard of Gentiles. They're likely to have a need to have their money converted into the currency of the Hebrew shekel. That's how they're going to pay their temple tax. They're likely to have the need of purchasing uh, an animal to sacrifice. Uh, Traveling with your own animal, it's not very uh, practical. And that's what's happening. Remember when Jesus was in the temple yesterday that nothing was going on, but not today. This courtyard, it would have been buzzing with activity. A mix of religious activity as well as common activity. Most of them are worshipers, but some of them aren't. Some of them are just taking a shortcut across this courtyard. One good indication of this activity can be seen in an example from a historian of of a, a similar era. About 20 years after this Passover, there's a historian who describes the same kind of buzz in Jerusalem in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And what that historian says is that there is an awful lot of people in this courtyard. It's frantically crowded. The number of animals that are moving through this courtyard during this week, he says, are 255,600. 255,600 lambs are being sold in the courtyard during the week of Passover. But notice this. Everything that I've just described to you, it's not real. It's a show. The temple activity is only pretending to be temple activity, just like the fig tree pretending to have spring figs. Um, A couple of years ago in uh, the city of Tokyo, there was a museum that was made called the Digital Art Museum. You can learn about this museum, but in essence, you walk into a room that is the size of three acres, and the room has nothing on the walls, nothing on the floor, nothing on the ceiling, but as you walk into the room in this uh, digital art museum, there are lasers driven by computers, and there are speakers that uh, present to you this immersive experience that is like no other. 
I don't know how they do it. I have no idea how they do it. But you can see videos of this place, and it is absolutely amazing. You see people who are walking through what looks like a science fiction scene, totally immersed by the sights and sounds of a world with millions of floating lanterns, uh, 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 intergalactic fish swimming around them, uh, vast tracts of rolling green hills. None of it's real. And I wonder what it would be like to spend an hour in that scene and then walk out to the sunshine on the street. I wonder what that feels like. I wonder what it feels like to uh, be in the Digital Art Museum in Tokyo and then have a power outage in the snap of a finger. Uh, everything just stops. The lasers are turned off, the sound is turned off, and all the blinds are swung open. I wonder what that would be like. Jesus does that in the temple. Jesus proclaims that everything that is taking place in the temple is a charade. It's pretend temple. Now, one man can't completely stop, by the way, everything that's happening in a 35-acre market in high gear. But in, chapter, or in verse 16, Mark tells us that Jesus, um, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Surely there's such a hubbub of activity that can't be shut down entirely. But by his actions, combined with his teaching, you know exactly what Jesus is doing. He's turning on the lights. He's exposing all of the pretending. And like a better, more honest, no-pretending priest, he judges the religious leadership of the temple. Right there, snap of the finger, all of the pretending is exposed. That's a pretty remarkable thing to imagine. Peter is imagining that. We're going to see his response a little bit later. But uh, know that this courtyard was meant to be a crossroads where Jews and Gentiles would meet in the activity of, of the temple. And so uh, imagine this. From a, a distance... Both Jews and Gentiles should have been able to see the 150-foot-tall temple encrusted with gold gleaming in the sun. They could have seen this at a distance. They should have seen this. And if you were a curious Gentile with no previous relationship with the God who established this temple, well, you wouldn't know exactly what to expect, would you? This temple is meant to be the place where you could come to meet this one true God of the Hebrew people. This was the place that you're supposed to be able to come to to speak with this one true God of the Hebrew people, to be cleansed even from your sins by this one true God of the Hebrew people. This is supposed to be the place for communing with that God. He comes near to you in this place, so you have heard. This is supposed to be the place where the one true God introduces you to not only himself, but this is where God introduces you to who you were meant to be. Your purpose, so these Hebrew people say, is truly discovered by this one true God, and he lets you know who he is and who you are. And right in this moment in particular, God's one true son is in this very temple, in the middle of 255,600 lambs is the one true lamb. He's here. Follow the gleaming temple and be cleansed.
But as the Gentile would get closer, they would see that it's not that place to meet God at all. It's just a mall. Just like any other mall, they all look the same. The phrase of Jeremiah that's captured here by Mark in verse 17, den of robbers, it literally means a cave of thieves, a place where illegal merchants offer illegal products for sale. Any Gentile who thought that he or she could come here to meet God just as he is, well, they're wrong. Just another mall. But Jesus is there. And he's the perfect priest who came to offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins. His body alone, not the body of the lambs, is what covers our sin. But the religious leadership is only pretending to offer the blood of Jesus with all of the lambs. They're just pretending. Why are they pretending? Perhaps there's money in it. The fig tree had big leaves but no fruit, and this is the shiny temple with no God of atonement and no forgiveness because the religious leaders, they're just pretending. Now, we're actually taught how to understand the fig tree that's deceptive and how to understand the temple that's deceptive by Jesus himself at the very end of the passage. Notice what happens the following day. Mark tells us that uh, Peter, he notices this same fig tree Now, it's important to form the right image in your mind right now as you hear Peter's words in verse 21. Look what Peter says. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, I don't want you to imagine the attitude of Peter as your own attitude to this miracle. Please don't imagine Peter uh, as uh, someone who is just simply uh, astonished and excited about the miracle of Jesus, as someone who is enthralled by this supernatural act. Wow, Jesus, you did it again. How cool. That's not Peter. That's you. Peter's actually sad. Peter is looking at this tree that's cursed, even to the roots, and he knows that this tree received a very harsh treatment for something that seems rather small. But Peter's also been thinking about what took place in the temple the day before, their second visit to the temple. That, too, was very harsh. Jesus, he made a scene. That's on Peter's mind. Jesus pronounced judgment in Jerusalem, in the temple, aimed at the very religious leadership of the temple for something that seems slight, the selling of animals. It could be viewed almost as a ministry. The withering of the fig tree, though, is final. It's final, and Peter knows that. No amount of nutrients are going to do anything for this fig. It is dead forever. Peter's not entertained by what Jesus has done. Peter's sad. Peter's worried. He's uncertain. Because is that what Jesus did to the temple as well? It's done. This is why verse 22 actually makes sense. 
Jesus, seeing this sadness and uncertainty in Peter's eyes, he says this, have faith in God. This situation in which the entire religious infrastructure is cursed, a situation and it looks as though as if that entire religious infrastructure is cursed, then there is no possibility for salvation. If the Judaism of the day is a pretend offer of salvation to the Gentiles and to the people of Abraham, well, what then is there, Jesus? That's Peter's concern. If all of Judaism is flattened by your judgment, where's our hope? This is why Jesus talks here about faith. We view this mountain as a mountain that's some kind of obstacle in our life. And if we just pray real hard, that obstacle of our lives will be uh, pushed away. And lo and behold, you'll get the promotion. You'll get the job. That's not what this mountain is about at all. In fact, this mountain isn't even about your faith. This mountain is about what God has the power to do and has done in his son Jesus Christ. No, really, uh, this mountain, which would have loomed large on the horizon of all of those who are listening to Jesus right now, uh, the mountain of Herod, uh, Herod who built this uh, great uh, uh, fortress, the Herodion, by taking a hill and scraping it level to the ground and building a mountain and putting a fortress on top of it. Jesus seems to be looking at that. But don't be impressed with what Herod can do. Be impressed with what God can do and is doing in your very midst. It's not your faith. It's the faith that God can take up and throw into the sea any mountain he pleases. In fact, God is so powerful. If all of Judaism flattens, all of the work of the Pharisees and the Sadducees turns to dust. God still has the power to save. And he does this for you. Jesus is actually encouraging Peter that the temple can be condemned, yet there's still an avenue for salvation. Jesus says that there is still hope for salvation for all those who trust in God. He can do it saving you even from your own sins. Salvation comes by meeting with God, trusting the forgiveness that he has for you. Before they reach the temple the day after he judged the temple, Jesus actually relegates the importance of the temple, dials the importance of the temple down a couple of degrees. The religious leadership and the temple of the court of, and the court of the Gentiles, they're no more important than that fig tree. What's important is this, coming to God in the life and death of Jesus, his only begotten son. That is Peter's hope. That's what removes the sadness of Peter. That's what saves Peter. The plan and purpose of salvation belongs to God, and he saves Peter who has placed his trust in Jesus alone. This is true whether the temple stands or whether the temple falls. Salvation is of the Lord, and we have that salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the faith that dispels Peter's fear. Let me go back to where we began as I conclude. You see, you and I, all of us, regardless of what you profess, you and I as human beings were made by God to worship him alone and to enjoy him forever. And when we don't, we are pretending and if we're not careful, we will be judged. 
you and I were made by God to worship him. This is what Christianity says to you this morning. Are you here this morning as someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but in your heart of hearts you know you're pretending. You're in it for some kind of benefit. You're in it so that you'll be liked by friends. You're in it so that your neighbors will see you leaving your house Sunday morning. You're you're in it because it's good for your career. You're in it because there's great networking here. This passage actually challenges us to ask if we ourselves are actually pretending in our profession of faith. Are you pretending? Be wary. Take note of that. If you need help discerning if you're pretending, thinking that maybe you are here for ulterior motives, would you please reach out to someone in this church and talk to them about that? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think I may have been playing a game. Reach out to someone. I mean, I know this sounds trite. Uh, Email the church and say, I'd like to speak with an elder. I think I might be pretending. Are you pretending to be a Christian? If you're here this morning and you haven't professed faith in Jesus Christ and you know that, Would you know that every success that you find in life, uh, every happiness that you have, every uh, good, peaceful relationship, every harmonious experience that you have in life, uh, would you listen very carefully to me as I tell you, you are just pretending. You're just pretending. There is no peace no joy, no happiness apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says about what you call simply remaining unaffiliated. The Bible says you're not simply unaffiliated. You're pretending. Let this be a moment where you stop pretending. Reach out to someone and would you ask them, tell me about this Jesus Pretend to your death, and you'll know for sure then. You and I, you see, were made by God to worship him alone, and we worship him in Christ Jesus, our Savior, the Lamb who gave his life for us. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for making yourself known in this word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you uh, would carry us uh, through the events of this week mindful of your word. Father, give us spiritual sensitivity that we might measure ourselves in terms of our love for Jesus. We thank you for him in his name. Amen.